Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Before we turn to this gospel reading from Luke, I want to begin with our first reading today, the one that Lindsay offered from Habakkuk. And be honest, how many of you, when you saw that name printed in your bulletin or heard it this morning, thought, what is that? Surely this is not a book in the Bible, right? Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets at the tail end of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, It's a brief and often ignored book, one we don't talk about a lot, and so let's begin by remembering who and where and when Habakkuk was. Habakkuk was an Israelite prophet living in the late 7th century in Judah. That's the 7th century BCE, so about 600 years before Jesus. He's beginning to witness signs of the expansion of the Babylonian Empire to the east, And he sees the writing on the wall. Jerusalem and all of Judah are going to be captured, and it's going to be bloody. In spite of its brevity, just three chapters this book, it contains 10% of all uses of the word violence in the entire Bible. Habakkuk paints a picture of what's going to happen in Judah using phrases like, they come for violence and take captives like sand. And he pleads with God for help in the face of this impending death and destruction. The book is really a lament about what will happen to his friends and family and neighbors. You could even say it's a rebuke of a God who refuses to help them. Listen again to Habakkuk's plea in the opening verses. Lord, how long will I call for help and you will not listen? I cry out to you, violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? In short, faced with suffering and evil, Habakkuk is asking God, why is this happening? Where are you? And why don't you do something to help us, God? The first part of our gospel lesson from Luke this morning plays on a very similar theme of innocent suffering in the face of evil. The passage comes in the midst of some of Jesus' most difficult teachings in the Gospel of Luke, and it begins by telling us that a group from among the people who Jesus is teaching to comes up to Jesus, and they bring up a recent event, and they ask Jesus to weigh in on it. The more poetic version of verse 1 is from the NRSV, and it reads, They told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Let's unpack that verse a bit. The Galileans are Jews, of course, from the northern region of Israel. And Jesus was a Galilean himself. And it's important to understand that they were second-class Jews, second-class to those living to the south in Judah, but they still were Jews nonetheless. And so when they say that Pilate, 
the governor of the Roman Empire in that region, had mingled the blood with their sacrifices. They mean to say that these Galilean Jews were in the temple offering sacrifices to God when Pilate killed them in cold blood. Can you imagine the tragedy, the emotional impact on Jews at the time? An agent of the empire came into the most sacred place in Judaism to these Jews in the temple while they were worshiping God, performing a religious ritual, and took their lives. For me, the story evokes the memory of the late Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was murdered while celebrating Mass in his church in El Salvador, and also of the nine members of Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, who were killed during a Bible study. And it seems that this group comes to Jesus asking him the same questions, essentially, that Habakkuk was asking God as his people faced suffering at the hands of another empire several hundred years earlier. Why is this happening to us? Where are you, God, and why don't you do something? Jesus doesn't exactly answer their questions directly, but his response makes it clear that he understands what they're really wondering about. They're wondering if the Galileans deserved it. Were they guilty of sin? And this was their punishment. And to this implied question, Jesus does offer a very clear answer. No, they're no more guilty of wrongdoing than any of you. This isn't God's punishment. Jesus even invokes another tragedy the collapse of a tower in Jerusalem that killed 18 people. And the simplest explanation as to why Jesus invokes this other tragedy is to call out their apparent prejudice against the Galileans and to help them understand that this kind of suffering isn't caused by anyone's sinfulness. These stories are harrowing reminders of the precariousness of our lives and the ubiquity of suffering. And for me, at least, it was hard to read these stories from Scripture this week and to not think about what's happening in Ukraine right now. These past few weeks, we've watched and read as news reports detail the invasion. And one of the cities that has received the brunt of the violence is Mariupol, a city in southeastern Ukraine. Some residents there have been able to evacuate safely, but hundreds of thousands of people are still trapped there. As of Tuesday, there were more than 2,000 vehicles parked on the main street out of the city, trapped, unable to evacuate. Those left behind in the city have taken refuge wherever they can, including in a local theater. And this Wednesday, Russian forces bombed that theater, and it collapsed. And I have to be honest with you, that when I wrote 
those sentences in my sermon earlier this week, I burst into tears. I imagined my own family hiding in that theater. Fear tearing apart my insides. And as I cried, I asked, why God? Where are you, God? While some people have emerged safely from the rubble of the theater alive, it's feared that hundreds will never make it out. Overall, officials estimate that more than 2,500 civilians have died in Mariupol alone since the war began. And just last night, I read a new report that some residents there have been taken out against their will into Russian concentration camps in Siberia. In the face of this senseless violence and suffering, how can we avoid falling into despair? While well, two readings this morning look to a strange and unexpected source of hope, fig trees with no fruit. Let's return to Habakkuk first. After two and a half chapters of language infused with suffering and lament, the final verses of Habakkuk that Lindsay read earlier turn to words of hope. The prophet writes, Though the fig tree doesn't bloom and there's no produce on the vine, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. Perhaps if you've heard any words from Habakkuk, these are the ones. And they're often pulled out of context. They're recited without any of the lament that precedes them. But when they're taken out of context, when they're divorced from the suffering that surrounds them, I'd argue that they become hollow. They're a platitude, an empty declaration of optimism that ignores the reality of the world we live in, because the world we live in is often brutal. It is full of suffering and evil that we can't escape. And real hope, the kind of hope that Habakkuk expresses in God's deliverance in these final verses, real hope acknowledges suffering. Real hope avoids the false optimism that denies the existence of suffering. And yet somehow at the same time it refuses to allow despair to take root in our lives when we suffer or when we witness the suffering of others. So then what about the other fig tree, the one in Jesus' parable? In Jesus' telling, the tree hasn't produced fruit in years and the landowner wants to cut it down. But the gardener intercedes on its behalf, saying, give it one more year, and I will dig around it and give it fertilizer, and maybe, just maybe, it will produce fruit next year. As with all of Jesus' parables, there's more than one way to interpret this one, so I want to offer one reading. Faced with the imminent death of the fig tree, 
What does the gardener do? Does he give up in despair, assuming that there's nothing that can be done to save the tree and see it finally bear fruit? No. He speaks up. He asks for one more year to see it bloom. And does he settle for a false optimism, offering only prayers, expressing his faith that God will make the fig tree bloom? No. He has a plan. He's moved to act. He will provide fertilizer and special care for the fig tree in the year ahead. In short, he'll do everything in his power to see it bloom. So what happens to this fig tree? Well, the parable doesn't say. The story ends right there. Optimism would tell us that it will bear fruit. We believe it. We have faith in it. And despair would say that it hasn't borne fruit yet and there's no reason to believe it ever will. But Christian hope, Christian hope says that it's possible. That by our efforts and by the grace of God, the tree can survive. It can still bear fruit. Christian hope requires not only faith in the power of God, but also faith in ourselves, in humanity. I have no doubt that God wants that tree to bear fruit. God created it to bloom, and yet God acts in partnership with us to make it happen. God acts with and through creation to produce fruit. And believing in that divine human partnership, that is hope. Among those able to escape from Mariupol was Lydia, a 34-year-old woman who was interviewed by CNN at a refugee camp about 140 miles away. She explained that she spent two weeks hiding in a basement with 60 other people and only decided to flee after bombs started hitting close to where they were hiding. She said, We left the city under shelling. There is no silence in Mariupol. And describing their escape, she said, We stopped several times and hid because the airplane was flying very low directly above us. We were afraid that we would come under fire but it was no longer possible to stay in the city. Mariupol is now just hell, she said. Lydia and all those escaping the violence in Ukraine right now are models of hope for us as Christians. While some of us have the luxury of being optimistic idealists, they do not. They cannot ignore the existence of suffering and evil. They're surrounded by it. But rather than fall into despair, Lydia claimed hope. She didn't know whether they'd escape. There was no guarantee. In fact, I'm sure that there were times when she thought that she would die. And yet she believed that it was possible. And she knew that she had to take action if she was going to make it out alive. 
For me, her story captures one of the themes at the heart of the season of Lent. We are caught between death and resurrection. The paradox of Lent is that we are already saved, already freed from suffering and promised new life, and somehow still we're not yet free. We're still fragile beings subject to deep suffering and brokenness. And so the hope we claim in Lent is a hope that's grounded in that very tension. Grounded in the tension between the perils of the world and the promises of God. Between the raw reality of the world as it is and the promises of the world as it could be. The hope of the beloved community of God. Finally, the Lenten hope we claim requires attention between our faith in God and our faith in humanity. Between the firm belief that nothing, not even death, is more powerful than the love of God and the belief that we are created in the image of that God and empowered to be co-creators of the beloved community. Since holding these tensions of hope can be difficult, I've chosen an affirmation of faith for us today to help us sit in the discomfort and the promise of that tension. It's a prayer originally called Prophets of a Future Not Our Own, which I've revised slightly for inclusive language. So I invite you to please stand as you're able and join me as we affirm our faith together. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The beloved community is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the beloved community always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs, we are prophets of a future not our own. Amen.
We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.